Book Six, Chapter Five, Part Two of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lea. Book Six, Practice, Chapter Five, Part Two, Evidence. Bishop Simancas tells us that, when there was suspicion of perjury, it was customary to examine the witness again, but that this was not done in other cases, so as not to lead him to commit perjury, a tenderness to the witness which had better have been displayed to his victim. But Simancas wrote before the instructions of 1561 were issued, and Rojas, whose work was subsequent, is very free-spoken in his denunciation of the customary practice. Some doctors, he says, argue that ratification supplies the place of letting the accused know the names of the witnesses. But this is a hallucination, for experience shows that this ceremony, with its two religious persons, is of no value, for it is a trait of humanity to persist in an assertion, whether true or false, especially where there is risk of perjury, and he urges that the witness should not be allowed to see his testimony, but should be examined anew, and the two statements be compared so that, from their variations, his credibility could be determined, and lying witnesses be detected. Few inquisitors could be expected to perform this conscientious duty, but one who wrote about 1640, indicates how fruitful it might prove. He tells us that, in suspicious cases, he had found the advantage of this plan, and had brought to light perjuries, which could have been proved in no other way. When witnesses betray their falsity by varying in important details, he can find them in solitary cells, where conscience did its work, and they confess their frauds. He had also seen many ancient processes in which commissioners and notaries were convicted, deprived of office, and punished in public autos de fe, which suggests unpleasantly how little reliance was to be placed on the officials who took down evidence. Before the invention of the formula ad perpetuum, there was a hardship inflicted by ratification in the excessive delays which it frequently caused. Thus Francisco Alonso, a Portuguese of Zamora, accused of bigamy, was thrown into the secret prison of Valladolid on July the 10th, 1627. As the alleged marriages had taken place in Coimbra, the evidence of their celebration had to be obtained from there, and it was a year before he had his first audience. When the time came for ratification, the depositions were sent for that purpose to Coimbra, on September 28, 1628, but, in spite of repeated urgency, they were not received back until December the 18th, 1629. Then the case dragged on until the poor wretch died on June the 10th, 1630, after three years of incarceration, when it was perforce suspended. Of all the devices for encouraging informers and crippling the defense of the accused, the most effective 
was the suppression of the names of the witnesses for the prosecution. This infamy was an inheritance from the old Inquisition. In 1298, under the pretext that those who gave evidence in cases of heresy were liable to vengeance from other heretics, Boniface VIII provided that, where such danger was threatened, inquisitors were at liberty to conceal the names of the witnesses, but he expressly ordered that, in the absence of such danger, the names were to be published as in other tribunals. That he construed this literally is evident, for when the Jews of Rome complained that in their case the names were habitually concealed, he decided that, as they were few and powerless, there was no danger and the names must be revealed. Permission to commit injustice is apt practically to assume the aspect of a council, and then of a command, and, in spite of Boniface's reservation, concealment became the universal practice of the Inquisition. So it was in Spain. At first, it was a discretionary power for the Inquisitor to use in exceptional cases, as when the Inquisitor of Ciudad Real, in the trials of Sancho de Ciudad and his wife, ordered, on January the 7th, 1484, that the witnesses' names be suppressed. It was an exception, which he explained by the fact that Sancho was regidor of the city, with powerful friends, and that the witnesses had been threatened. Similarly, in the instructions of November 1484, the suppression of witnesses' names was permissive, not mandatory. Allusion was made to the danger of testifying against heretics. It was asserted that some witnesses had been murdered or wounded for that cause, wherefore inquisitors could suppress their names, and all circumstances that would lead to their identification. All that was needed was permission, and suppression speedily became the rule. Of course there was occasional danger, and of course there were efforts, by threats or otherwise, to deter informers and witnesses. But this is common in all criminal justice, though there was no thought of applying concealment to the secular courts. It was a privilege exclusively in favor of the faith. Considering the provocation and the number of the victims, attacks on witnesses would appear to be singularly few and wholly inadequate to justify their protection by such means, although the Inquisition never ceased to proclaim it as an ever-present danger. In August 1500, Ferdinand and Isabella asked of Manuel of Portugal the extradition of Juan de Zafra and his son-in-law for seeking to kill Juan Lopez of Badajoz, who had testified against Zafra, and not finding him, had beaten to death his pregnant wife and stabbed his young son and had escaped to Portugal. They were surrendered, but there seemed to have been no precedent for their prosecution, and in January 1501 we find Ferdinand writing to the Tribunal of Seville to hold a consultation as to the procedure in the case. Again, in January 1502, when a witness in Calatayud was threatened, Ferdinand ordered the inquisitor, if the report was true, to take such action as comported with the honor of the holy office and the protection of witnesses. Evidently, 
cases had been so rare that no method of dealing with them had been formulated. Still, apprehension was lively, and when, in 1507, at Lerena, some conversos living near the Inquisition were suspected of watching to see what witnesses went there, Ferdinand empowered the inquisitors to remove six of them summarily and replace them with persons beyond suspicion. The suppression of the names of witnesses was necessarily felt as an extreme hardship by the conversos, not only as impeding defense, but as stimulating false accusations, which there was no opportunity of disproving. The Jaén Memorial of 1506 does not hesitate to accuse the officials of the tribunal of thus piling up fictitious charges, and Lucero's career at Córdoba shows how successfully this could be done when witnesses need not be either named or produced. That efforts should be made to purchase relief was natural. When, in 1512, Ferdinand was lacking in funds for the conquest of Navarre, an offer of 600,000 ducats was made to him if he would remove the seal of secrecy from the names of informers and witnesses, but we are told that he preferred his God and his faith and the preservation of religion. Soon after his death, an attempt was made to tempt the young Charles V with a bribe of 800,000 crowns. His greedy advisers favored the petition, but Jimenez interposed with a strong remonstrance, reciting Ferdinand's refusal and predicting the ruin of the holy office. Recently, he added, at Talavera la Reina, a Judaizing converso, punished by it, obtained knowledge of the informer, lay in wait for him, and slew him, and such is the infamy inflicted by the Inquisition, and such the hatred engendered by it, that, if the names of the witnesses were published, they would be slain, not only in solitudes, but in the streets, and even in the churches. No one would be able to denounce heretics, save at the peril of his life, so that the Inquisition would be ruined, and God would have no defender. Charles was convinced, and the dazzling bribe was rejected. Thus the policy of the Inquisition was settled, and so completely was it embodied in the estilo that it was frequently enforced in cases where its ostensible reason was inapplicable. When Juan Franco was burned for Protestantism at Toledo in 1570, the only witness against him was another Frenchman, Jean de Provence, who had confessed to being a Protestant dogmatizer, and as such was undoubtedly burned. His only evidence had been some idle talk between them eight years previously. He was eminently safe from vengeance, and yet his name was carefully suppressed in the publication of evidence. For all this, when the rule was applied to the inquisitors, as it was in the visitations, when the inspector was interrogating the officials about each other, they fully recognized its injustice. Thus, in 1574, during an inspection of the Canary Tribunal, when the inquisitor Ortiz de Funes was inculpated, he complained bitterly, that it rendered it impossible for him to verify or invalidate the testimony of the witnesses, a scruple which he had never felt when administrating justice in this fashion. 
the fiction was persistently maintained that the usefulness of the inquisition depended wholly on the suppression of the names of witnesses in the struggle over the evocation to rome of the case of villanueva the main argument repeatedly advanced by the suprema was that if appeals to rome were permitted they would destroy its efficiency in the suppression of heresy for no one would denounce heretics or testify against them if there was risk that their names would become known in rome by the papers being carried thither the idleness of this talk is indicated by the rarity of cases of injury or threats to witnesses and the moderation with which they were customarily punished the most serious case that i have met was that which followed the condemnation to lifelong reclusion in a monastery of luis palias lord of cortes by the tribunal by the tribunal of valencia in 1571 for protecting his morisco vassals from the inquisition suspicion of having informed on him fell upon francisco gonzalez and the pious family ordered his murder for which in 1577 four of the pious retainers were relaxed to the captain-general for execution so unusual was the case that the latter had scruples as to his duty which philip the second told him were superfluous and had unnecessarily delayed the punishment like any other murder this involved the death penalty but as a rule offences of minor degree were leniently treated in sixteen thirty one francisca munoz of segovia wounded juan martinez in the face after asking why he had put her mother-in-law in the inquisition for which she was only reprimanded in the audience chamber and banished for two years from segovia in various other cases of threatening witnesses the severest punishment i have met is a hundred lashes coupled with more or less exile and this considering the liberality with which scourging was administered implies that the offence was not regarded as requiring severe repression although thus the penalties were not greatly deterrent the cases would appear to be singularly few in the toledo record from sixteen forty eight to seventeen ninety four the only one occurred in sixteen fifty when pedro de vega alcaide of montbeltran after trial for a proposition without conviction had threatened and insulted the witnesses for this he was prosecuted and escaped with a severe reprimand and warning to appreciate fully the hardship which the suppression of witnesses names inflicted on the accused it must be borne in mind that his only opportunity of knowing what was the evidence against him was in the so-called publication this will be considered more in detail hereafter and it suffices here to point out how the effort to mislead the prisoner as to the identity of his accusers led to the garbling of the evidence in a manner necessarily adding impediments to the exceedingly limited opportunities allowed him for defence yet we occasionally meet with cases which suggest that inquisitors were less solicitous about the safety of their witnesses than to create the belief in safety that would encourage denunciation thus in the trial of hans of antwerp in toledo for lutheranism in fifteen sixty one there was no scruple in setting forth the evidence 
in such wise that he could not fail to identify the witness. This could scarce be avoided in the very fruitful source of evidence volunteered by cell companions. Thus, in the Toledo case of Pedro Flamenco in 1570, the testimony of two fellow prisoners as to his talk and conduct in prison is so set forth as to render their identification inevitable, and, as it included their opinions that he was a scoundrel and villain, there must have been lively times in that cell on his return from his audience. In cases of solicitation, the attempt to prevent identification was futile, for the confessor could not fail, from the incidents freely detailed, to recognize the women whom he had seduced, or attempted to seduce. In secular procedure, there was occasional recourse to confrontation, bringing the accused face to face with the accuser or the witnesses, and letting them debate the questions that had puzzled the judges, but it was regarded as a doubtful expedient, to be resorted to only when all else had failed. In 1491, in the case of the Santo Nino de la Guardia, where the accused were witnesses against each other, and the confessions under torture were irreconcilable, confrontation was tried with dubious success. This indicates that under supreme pressure the veil of secrecy might be withdrawn, and probably the example was occasionally followed, for while this, in the instructions of 1561, felt it necessary to say that, although confrontation was practiced in other jurisdictions, it was not customary in the Inquisition, for, besides the violation of secrecy, experience had shown that, when tried, it was disadvantageous. This did not wholly put an end to it, for in 1568 the Suprema sharply rebuked the Tribunal of Barcelona for various irregularities, among which was the frequent recourse to confrontation. The latest allusion to the practice that I have met with in Spain occurs in the Valladolid case, in 1620, of the priest Juan de Gabana and his accomplice, Jerónima González, when the Consulta de Fe proposed to confront them, but refer the matter to the Suprema. Its decision would doubtless have been in the negative, but was never rendered, as Gabana died before it replied. In the Roman Inquisition, confrontation was sparingly admitted, and only when both parties were of low estate, never between those of higher station or of different classes. While sedulous care was taken to prevent the accused from identifying the witnesses, it often was necessary for the witnesses to identify the accused, to prevent mistakes liable to occur in the arbitrary methods of the Inquisition. This was so managed as to accomplish both objects. The somewhat crude plan adopted in 1528 in the trial at Toledo of Diego de Uceda was to conceal the witnesses in the torture chamber while he was walked up and down for a quarter of an hour until they fully identified him. Subsequently, it was found expedient to furnish the audience chamber with a celosia, a jealousy or lattice-work, through which the witness could peer without being discovered. Its utility was strikingly demonstrated in 1649, in a Valladolid case of alleged bigamy, when one of the wives, Anna Roman, was brought to inspect the accused through the lattice, 
and declared that he was not the Juan Gonzalez whom she had married, as he differed in age, in size, and in features, whereupon he was discharged. In view of the temptation offered for the gratification of malice by shielding informers and witnesses, special care was advisable for the detection and punishment of false witness. This was the more necessary as perjury was a popular failing, and the sanction of an oath was lightly esteemed. In 1555, the Cortes of Valladolid asked that, in cases involving death or mutilation, oaths should be abolished, as they merely led to perjury, and in 1560, the Cortes of Toledo complained of the prevalence of false witness as a matter so customary that there were provinces in which it was as abundant as any other merchandise, and it was openly said that for money a man could get as many witnesses as he desired. We have seen how, in 1488, at Toledo, eight Jews were torn with hot pincers and lapidated for bearing false witness against good Christians, with the object of rendering the Inquisition odious. This savage penalty compares strangely with the leniency shown to exculpatory perjury in the case of Mosen Pedro de Santa Hel, prior of Daroca, who had sought, by the employment of several false witnesses, to save his brother, Luis de Santa Hel, burned for complicity in the murder of San Pedro Arbues. He escaped with the simple penance of holding a lighted candle before the high altar, and they were treated as benignantly. It was probably to secure greater uniformity that, in the instructions of 1498, inquisitors were told to inflict public punishment according to law on those whom they detected in testifying falsely. The matter was one which might well excite solicitude, for it is evident that perjury on both sides was rife, and the tribunals might reasonably hesitate to believe any witnesses. In 1500 and 1501 we find Ferdinand repeatedly interposing to shield those whom he favored and whom he declared to be persecuted by perjurers, and the career of Lucero shows how readily and unscrupulously they could be employed in the secrecy of the tribunals. The Jaén Memorial of 1506 speaks of a certain Diego de Algecira, whom Lucero kept for five years to testify against all whom he desired to destroy, and whom the inquisitors of Jaén borrowed for the same purpose, besides other adepts of the kind whom they employed and rewarded. When a raid was made on Arjona, the notary Barcena brought with him Luis de Vilches, who, by changing his name and garments, testified repeatedly in different characters. One of the petitions of the Cortes of Monson, in 1512, bears eloquent testimony to the same state of affairs in Catalonia, for it asks that, when a man was burned through fraudulent testimony, the inquisitors should not prevent the king from punishing the false witnesses. Such a system necessarily produced professional perjurers who did for gain what others might do through malice. That the accused should resort to the same means was inevitable. In Segovia, in 1504, there appears to have been a perfect carnival of false witness. 
On July 10th and 11th, there were punished two accusing perjurers and twenty-two who had sworn falsely on the side of the defense. There were others who had died before sentence, and still more who had confessed and were awaiting punishment, which consisted mostly in scourging and exile. Thus far, there seems to have been uncertainty as to jurisdiction. In the Catalan efforts for relief, the bull Pastoralis Officii was procured from Leo X on August the 1st, 1576, which rendered perjury committed in the Inquisition justiciable by the inquisitors and ecclesiastical judges in conjunction, but not severally. The result was naturally discouraging, and papal intervention was again sought. In a brief of December 14, 1518, addressed to Cardinal Adrian, Leo deplored the condition under which, through false witness, the guilty escaped and the innocent suffered, but the only remedy provided was in conferring full jurisdiction on inquisitors with faculties to punish, even by relaxation to the secular arm, without incurring irregularity. The crime was thus placed wholly in the hands of the inquisition, which was no more likely than before to exert itself in checking perjured accusations. This proved to be the case, and, in 1523, the Cortes of Valladolid asked that it should inflict on false witnesses the penalties provided by the laws of Toro in 1502, which decreed the talio for perjury committed in criminal cases. Charles contented himself with replying that he had asked the Pope to appoint as Inquisitor-General Archbishop Manrique, whom he would charge to see justice done. That this remedy proved futile may be gathered from the Memorial of Granada, in 1526, in which one of the arguments against the suppression of the names of witnesses is the number of souls condemned to hell for perjury, through the facilities offered by the secret system tempting them to destroy their enemies or to swear falsely through bribery, a thing which happens every day. In fact, the procedure of the Inquisition was such as to encourage the crime and to render its detection exceedingly difficult, at least when committed for the benefit of the prosecution. When every precaution was taken to prevent the accused from identifying his accusers, it was expecting too much of the average inquisitor that he should depart from the routine work of his office to discover, without assistance from those interested, whether the witnesses, mechanically examined by him or his commissioner, were telling the truth or not. Had there been any zeal in this direction, the Suprema would not have felt obliged, in 1531, to instruct the tribunals that perjurers should be punished as a warning to others, giving due consideration as to whether they were actuated by malice or ignorance. Possibly this may have stimulated some tribunal to inconvenient activity, for in 1536 it saw occasion to moderate zeal by ordering that the rigor of the brief of Leo X should not be observed unless someone had been condemned through false evidence, and even in such case the Suprema was to be consulted before action. The infallibility of the Inquisition was too important to be rashly compromised. Moderation thus remained the rule. 
Simancas tells us that, under Leo's brief, perjurers should be burnt with confiscation, but this should only be done when the accused has suffered severely. In most cases the injury is but slight, for which such penalties suffice as appearing in an auto with a defamatory mitre, and scourging, galleys, or exile. Even when burned, there are no disabilities on these sentence. The talio has become virtually obsolete, and should be used only in extreme cases. Subornation of perjury is even worse than false witness, and incurs the same punishment. Theoretically, this reflects the ordinary practice. I have met with but one case in which a perjurer was burnt, and this was in Sardinia in 1562. But about 1640, an experienced inquisitor states that he has seen records of such cases in Logroño, and it is possible that they occurred occasionally. So also we sometimes find scourging in the galleys in aggravated cases, while priests were let off with fines and exile. Still, the tendency was to extreme moderation. In Valladolid, Juan Gomez Rubio suffered imprisonment for nearly two years, from 1636 to 1638, on a charge of blasphemous propositions, when his case was suspended and he was dismissed with a reprimand and the corresponding infamy. His accuser, was Pedro de la Cruz, who had testified twice against him under fictitious names, and had suborned others to appear against him, for which he escaped with parading in vergüenza and exile. A still more significant case was that of Jean de la Barre, a Fleming, long settled in Madrid, where he was deputy alcaide of the royal palace of the Pardo. He was a man of somewhat excessive devoutness, he had a mass celebrated daily in the royal chapel by a chaplain of his own, until the regular chaplain, a Dr. Robles, who was also commissioner of the Inquisition, forbade it and forced him to the Church of the Trinitarians. He endeavored to form a confradia for celebrating masses, but Robles demanded to be the head of it and to handle the funds without accountability, when Labar abandoned the project although he had spent five hundred ducats on a silver lamp for the chapel. They naturally quarreled, and, when Robles sought a reconciliation, his overtures were rejected. He revenged himself in January 1656 by denouncing Labarre for various heretical speeches, for neglecting mass and confession, and, what was perhaps more serious than all, for saying that inquisitors were robbers who seized rich men to strip them of their property. Labar had discharged several workmen for theft and idleness, and they were readily induced to appear as corroborating witnesses. He easily identified his accusers, and in defense presented twenty-five witnesses in his favor, among them five Trinitarian friars and some officials of high rank, who testified emphatically to his unusual devotion. His rosary was never out of his hands. He heard mass daily, and spent three reales a day for it. They also told of the mortal enmity and threats of Robles, and the discharged workmen, and showed the reasons. There could be no clearer case of a foul conspiracy to ruin an innocent man, 
but he was sentenced to reprimand and exile, and was threatened with a hundred lashes if he dared to speak of his treatment. That his case was suspended, and he was not required to abjure even the Lewi, showed that there was no suspicion of heresy proved, and that the sentence, with its consequences of infamy on him and his posterity, was a mere wanton exercise of arbitrary power, while the false witnesses were not troubled, for there are no marginal notes on the record showing that extracts were taken from the evidence for their prosecution. It was still admitted that the legal punishment was the talio, but that it should only be inflicted when the perjurer had encompassed the conviction of his victim, thus weighing the crime, not by its criminality, but by its result. How lightly, indeed, false swearing was regarded per se, is indicated by a curious case occurring in Valladolid in 1630. A student named Luis Sanchez denounced certain Portuguese of Zamora of endeavoring to convert him. The receiver and an alguazil were sent thither, but could find no trace of the accused, nor even of the street in which they were described as residing. Sanchez was sent for, was made to ratify his deposition, and was then accused of the fraud and mockery of the tribunal. He admitted it, and explained that he had been thrown into a jail in a suit over a mare, and had devised this expedient for getting out, in hopes of escaping to the asylum of a church. His trial went through all the regular stages. The vote of the consulta de fe was sent to the Suprema, which contented itself with sentencing him to a reprimand, six years' exile from Valladolid, and a fine of two hundred ducats, with the charitable alternative that, if he was too poor, he should swear to pay it if he should ever be able. While thus the Inquisition was benignantly disposed towards perjury, the secular law did not relax its severity. In Aragon, the Cortes of Monson, in 1564, decreed the talio in criminal cases for accusing false witnesses and for those produced by the defense, in addition to the penalties prescribed by the fueros, scourging and perpetual banishment, besides making good all expenses incurred by the other party. In Castile, a pragmatica of Philip II in 1566, confirmed by Philip III in 1603, when the case was not capital, substituted for the talio, scourging, and the galleys for life. The tenderness of the Inquisition for such offenses was not derived from any softening of the law of the land. With the development of limpieza, there sprang up a new and fruitful source of perjury. Those who were endeavoring to prove immaculate descent had no scruple in filling any genealogical gaps by purchasing witnesses to supply deficiencies, and those who, through envy or malice, desired the defeat of an aspirant, found ready means of putting forward witnesses to swear as to public repute, or that they had seen sanbenitos of ancestors. As early as 1560, and again in 1574, the Suprema found it necessary to issue instructions to meet these cases. Bigamy trials also brought to light a contingent of perjurers, mostly employed by the guilty party, desiring remarriage, to swear that he or she was single. 
End of Book 6, Chapter 5, Part 2